I'm glad. We'll pray for you, Ben. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for these kids. And what a blessing it is just to hear the sort of the trampling of the herd down to class. Um, God, I, I pray that you would impress upon them the truth and beauty of Jesus. Even as they talk about Jacob and Rachel, they're reminded of the fact that you keep promises. Things, though they don't go according to plan, you have good and perfect purposes in mind. That you are the God who opens barren womb. You are the God who restores. You are the God who keeps. I pray that they would place their trust in you. That their sense of being okay would be the fact that they know and love Jesus and find their hope in Him. And Lord, for us, as we gather here, we talk about Acts chapter 2. God, I pray that you would arrest our hearts. That we would would come to know ourselves better as we look upon Christ, see Him for who He is, for what He has done, and that we would truly desire to follow Him wholeheartedly as our Christ and our Lord. God, I pray that those would not be empty words. Pray that we would not be callous about the things that we have just sung. I pray that we would not be tempted to nod off or be nonchalant about your word that is being proclaimed because we know that they speak about Jesus, our Lord, our Christ, whom we crucified. And so, Lord, help us to see him and adore him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 36 this morning. You can find it on page 910 in the Pew Bibles there. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. And so the blue and white Bibles that are right there in the, the pew, those are yours. Just take one of those. We'd love to give that to you for being here. Again, Acts chapter 2, verses nine, or 29 through 36. Is a person's identity dependent upon our acknowledgement of them? Are they who they are only when we recognize them? So the celebrity, when, when she, she uh, puts on a hat and, and a trench coat and glasses, does she suddenly stop being the celebrity? Was the prince any less a prince just because he temporarily traded occupation and clothing with the pauper? Did Superman stop being Superman when he was dressed up like Clark Kent? I mean, I know that was confusing for Lois, but it never really puzzled me. Do you stop being who you are simply because a, an old classmate doesn't recognize or even remember you. The same is true for kings. King Albert I of Belgium, he used to disguise himself so that he could walk out among his people. He did this because he, he loved them. He cared deeply for them. He was concerned for their welfare. And so he wanted to get a ground-level view. He wanted to be in and among them to see how they lived and what they truly needed. Well, there was this one time where he's driving in his car, right? And he has this scarf over his face, and he's got these driving goggles on. You know, he's, he's all up to date on the latest fashions. And, and uh, he's pulled over by a police officer. He had, he had committed some traffic violation. Apparently, there was uh, uh, street lights had, had put a glare up on the glass or blinded him somehow, and he committed this, this offense. And, and the police officer was really laying into it really letting him have it all, all the while, just completely oblivious to who Prince Albert was or King Albert was. And, and so the, the king, he apologized, but he still held to his defense about the streetlights blinding him. And so the officer, 
you know, very sarcastically replied to him, well, I'll let you off this once, but when I see the king, I'll make sure to have him rearrange the streetlights for you before you drive this way again. Now, ironically, he was in the presence of the king, and he had no idea. Right? He couldn't see him. He couldn't recognize him for who he was. But just because he could not recognize King Albert, it didn't change the fact that Albert was the king. Well, this morning, we're going to read about another king, another lord whose position was not elected, It's not a matter of personal opinion or personal recognition or popular poll. It it goes far deeper than even the idea of birthright. And yet it is essential for us to know for certain who this king is. You see, his position as king and his lord is established on the basis of who he is and who God himself has revealed him to be. This Lord is Lord over all, over the heavens, over the earth, over sickness, over death, over demons, over disease, over nature, and even over the hearts and minds and even tongues of men. And so this position is eternally significant for each and every one of us, whether we recognize and affirm him or not. In this passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36, will present us with proof of his position, and then it's going to pose a challenge. A proof and a challenge, right? Jesus is the exalted Lord, but is he your Lord? This passage will reveal his reign, and I pray that as this passage commends his true identity to you, that Christ would reign in your hearts so that you might know for certain that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ, whom we all crucified. Jesus is the exalted Lord, but is he your Lord? And so please look at the text with me, Acts chapter 2. Verses 29 through 36. It says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now in his kindness, God has revealed to us, first of all, that Jesus is the exalted Lord. Now you may have a hard time buying that statement. Or maybe... Maybe you'll easily confess that statement with your lips. But if you took an honest look at your life, what you live for, what you truly believed, what you spoke of, you realize, you know what? I have a really hard time believing that in my heart. Now Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give us four different proofs that Jesus is Lord. He's going to give us scriptural proof. He's going to give us physical proof. He's going to give us heavenly proof. And he's going to give us experiential proof. Now, we've already seen some of the scriptural proof. I mean, back in chapter 1, Peter quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in regard to God's judgment of Judas, this betrayer of Jesus, who, how. You know, God's punishing him, and they needed to replace his office as one of the 12 apostles. 
And then as we move into chapter 2, the first point of, of Peter's Pentecost sermon there in chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, he quotes from Joel chapter 2 that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a sign that the day of the Lord is at hand. A day of judgment for the nations, but a day of restoration for the people of Israel, of God's people in particular. And so the implication that it leads us all to is to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So then he moves into his second point. There in verses um, 22 through 28. And in that second point, he begins to explain who that Lord is and what it actually means that Jesus is Lord. And so in verses 25 through 28, he quotes from Psalm 16 to show how the de Jesus' death and resurrection according to plan thus proves that he is the resurrected Christ. So his life, his death, his resurrection according to a plan establishes the fact Jesus is the Christ. And so now that brings us up to our passage this morning. What I just read to you in verses 29 through 36 is the third point of Peter's sermon. That this Jesus, whom you, we crucified, is the exalted Lord. And here, he quotes from Psalm 110, and he also alludes to at least three different passages. Psalm 132, 2 Samuel 7, and 1 Chronicles 17. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, allusion, right? Uh, allusion is when you're pointing directly to a text, but you're not quite quoting it or paraphrasing it, all right? So, for example, if you look back in the back of our room there, we've got this banner that has our vision statement on it. And our vision statement here at Redeemer Church says, because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed to the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to all peoples. And that's a mouthful, Right? An allusion to that statement that's back there on the banner might be to say that Redeemer is all about exaltation, transformation, and proclamation. You see how that points directly to that statement? It's tied very closely to that statement. That's what an allusion is. Now, Peter is dumping a lot of Old Testament passages on us. Right? We're not even out of Acts chapter 2, and already he's all over the Old Testament. But he's doing that to remind us, to give us scriptural proof so that we can know for certain that Jesus is Lord. That these are God's words to us so that we might know Him and so that we might believe. And Peter, it's important to point out, is interpreting all of these Old Testament passages in light of Jesus. Now, the allusion to Psalm 132, to 2 Samuel 7, to 1 Chronicles 17 is right there in verse 30. Okay, it says, Being therefore a prophet, it's one who's given divine authority to speak the words of God for the faithfulness of God's people. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that is David, that God would set one of his descendants on his throne. Now, even right there, you begin to wonder what Peter is doing with these pronouns. Is he speaking of David's descendant upon David's throne or God's son upon God's throne or both? Now, if you looked back at 2 Samuel 7, you'd see that God made a promise to David that he would establish one of David's future offspring to rule on the throne forever. It says that this offspring, this descendant, would build a house for God's name and that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But God doesn't only say that. God also says, I will be a, to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now Solomon built a temple for God, but it was raised to the ground. And if you follow the history of Israel, you know that the Davidic line didn't last all that long. That, that kingship was effectively nullified in 586 B.C., never to really physically be reestablished. And so did God fail? Did he fail to keep his promises, or were they just kind of fulfilled and done with so long ago? Well, as we keep reading the New Testament, we understand, no, God kept them through his Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
who is also a son of David, one of David's future offspring. And so Peter is saying here, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, and he's more than that. He is the true temple. He's building a house, not, not a building, but a family, a dynasty in God's name, and his throne is forever. He's reigning on that throne right now forever. When Jesus speaks of his kingdom in the Gospels, what does he call it? The kingdom of God. This is a forever, universal, spiritual kingdom overall. And so Peter is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of God's oath to David, but in a much bigger, a much greater, a much different way than any of us ever, ever expected. Now, we looked at this last week, but it's worth pointing out again in verse 31 that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, this Christ being the future king who would deliver God's people, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that's the grave, that's death, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so what David spoke of as a future event in verse 27, that God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption, future tense, Peter interprets in in verse 31 as past tense. Peter says that Jesus fulfilled this, that he was not abandoned, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So Jesus is the resurrected Christ. And that term Christ, we have got to keep this in mind. That term Christ does not simply mean one who delivers us from our sin. A redeemer. And though that is true, it means much, much more. That term Christ is inseparably bound to God's promise of a forever king. And so when you hear the word Christ, you have to understand he's referring to a king. Christ means king. Already that ought to bring about some level of conviction. Now, if all of that scriptural proof that that Peter has has just given us is not enough for you, that Jesus is the Lord, that, that God was promising, verses 34 and 35, Peter is is laying down his trump card. And it just so happens that this trump card is a king. He said, For David, unlike Jesus, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friends, this is the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Right? By one account, it is quoted or alluded to 21 times times in the New Testament. So it is essential, it is profoundly important that we get this passage right, that we understand this so that we can know who Jesus truly is. And so I want you to see this more clearly. So if you would, keep your finger here in Acts chapter 2 and go ahead and turn to the left to Psalm 110. It's page 509 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 110, we're only looking at verse 1. Spurgeon said the the rustling of of the pages of the Bible is the sweetest music in a preacher's ear. Psalm 110, verse 1. Now look really carefully at the heading there. What does it say? It says, a psalm of David. That means that it is a psalm that is written by King David. David is the author. He wrote it. Okay. Now look, it says, the Lord. Now do you notice how Lord is all in small caps right there? You ever see that? I'm looking for a little bit of audience participation right here. I know it's a little warm in here. Eyes are getting a little bit heavy. Just talking about a lot of scripture. I'm getting a little bored. But, you know, let's, let's stick with it here, okay? All right? The Lord. It's in small caps. That's an indication of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of God. Or sometimes it's substituted Jehovah, okay? You, you see, the Jewish people were so reverent of the name of God, that they almost became superstitious about taking it in vain. And so what they did is they substituted the word Yahweh with the word Adonai, which means Lord. 
And, and that's why it's all there in small caps, right? So basically what's happening is that the Jews are saying, look, look, we're using the word Lord, but what we really mean is That's what they're saying. They had to whisper it, right? And so the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord. Now David's writing, and so David is my, right? God says to David's Lord, who is the Christ. And though he is the heir, he's the offspring, he's a descendant, a son of David, he is also David's Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me, David's Lord. And he says, God says to the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Israel was all about God making their enemies their footstool. They're like, oh yeah, get down here so I can put my foot up on your face. You know, they're all about that. But the idea of their king sitting at the right hand of God, that's unfathomable. Right? Because God is holy. God can have nothing to do with sin. And so how could a finite, unholy man sit at the right hand of God? I mean, you, kinda, you, you think about it, like the high priest of that time, in order to go into the holy of holies, he had to go through this long seven-day process of kind of cleansing himself to purify himself, and he was only in there for like an hour. And so how could this king... This Lord sit at the right hand of God unless he himself is divine. To sit at God's right hand would be to share in God's glory, to share in God's authority. And even that term footstool ought to really draw our attention back to God's promise to Adam and Eve after they had sinned about how God would would raise up this seed of a woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent that is Satan. And so this victory that they're talking about, making enemies your footstool, this is not national. This is supernatural. This is universal. It's, it's cosmic. It's spiritual. And so again, we see that the Old Testament promise to David is far, far bigger than David himself. This Lord has heavenly authority and victory over all. Friends, do you see how big this is? Have you ever thought about how big this is? To say that Jesus is Lord, and that he's sitting at the right hand of God, this is cosmic and eternal. And that's only the scriptural proof that Peter provides in just a few verses. So imagine what all of scripture has to say about Jesus big. But in addition to the scriptural proof, Peter provides physical proof. And so in verse 29, he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, this is one of those few times where David is called a patriarch, a father of the promise. You, you see, when God makes promises to forefathers that are binding on future generations, they're called patriarchs, right? They, it has implications of rule and blessing for future generations. And so God's promise to David of a forever death-defeating heir was binding for future generations of God's people. And yet, David is dead and buried in a tomb. David's body didn't ascend into the heavens. And so how could Psalm 110 possibly be about him? Peter says, look, here's the proof. Here's the physical proof. We know where David's body is, but Jesus has been raised. Now what, what really caught my interest in, in thinking about this is why didn't Peter take them to the empty tomb? I mean, Peter ran there. He entered into the tomb. He saw the, the, the burial garments there, but Jesus was gone. And so you'd think that, okay, let, let me show you. Let me prove this to you, okay? This is David's tomb right here, but let's come on over here. Follow me. Look, look, nothing. Jesus' tomb is empty. 
kind of surprised that he didn't do that. Now, it could be that, that it was now being guarded by soldiers. Could be that they might well say, well, you know, you, you guys did something with the body. That's why it's empty. Or maybe you got the wrong tomb here, Peter. But it could also be that his point is not to compare tombs. Right? I mean, well, well, David's tomb, you see, David's tomb is very old, but Jesus' tomb, Jesus' tomb is brand new. David's tomb was ornately carved from white marble, but Jesus' tomb, though it was made for a rich man, let, let's face it, it was, it was dug out of the side of a dirty, stony hill. It just had some big rock that was rolled in front of the door. David's tomb is a beautiful memorial at the very epicenter of Jerusalem, but Jesus' tomb is out there on the outskirts in a graveyard among other tombs. You know, if you compared tombs, David's is better, except for one difference. Jesus' tomb is empty. David's tomb still has a body in it. David is... hands of lawless men. In verse 24, it was God who loosed the pangs of death that held him in the grave. It was God that did not abandon his soul to Hades nor let his flesh see corruption in verses 27 and 31. And then 33 adds, being therefore exalted. Now who exalted him? God exalted him. Right? So being exalt, therefore being exalted by God to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So God exalted him to his right hand and God gave him the right to pour out the Holy Spirit. There's the economic trinity for you there. Even though they are one, right? They have different roles. Father supreme over all, gives the Son the right to pour out the Spirit. And in verse 36 it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now wait a minute, Peter. You, you said God made him Lord and Christ. That, that sounds like adoptionism. That sounds like the idea that, that God sort of picked Jesus and endowed him with superhuman abilities for a while, and then, and then maybe that's it, that he's kind of a demigod. He's not actually God, right? As if, as if you know, there was first just ordinary Jesus, and then God made him special or, or super Jesus, that he was once mild-mannered Jesus of Nazareth until one day he was bitten by the radioactive spider of the Holy Spirit or endowed with the Logos at some point in his life, and he became the Son of God. You know, there were and there are people that believe this about Jesus. We call them heretics. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I have an entire systematic theology lecture on the deity of Christ. I'm going to spare you from that right now. We could, we could spend all day looking up passage after passage after passage, hundreds of passages to point to Jesus' deity. But let me give you just one from the mouth of Jesus himself. John 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying to the Father. And now Father... He was not adopted. He is forever the Son of God. What Jesus is praying for right here is exactly what God did in His exaltation. That God revealed the glory of Christ that He always had, but we could not see. But He did it in a way that was even greater than it was before because this Lord not only owns us by right as Creator, but He has proven Himself Lord as He's redeemed His people from their sin through His death and resurrection from the grave. This Lord died and was raised for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Keep in mind, is a very general word in the Greek. It, it means to do, to make, to establish, to bring something about, to perform an action, or just to show. 
In this case, it's referring to the fact that God the Father has shown or established or revealed the true identity of Jesus through his actions. God has revealed to us who Jesus is. Right? Peter's not trying to argue for the eternal nature of the second person of the Trinity here. He's trying to establish the fact that God has exalted him in order to prove his position that he is both Lord and Christ. And God the Father has made that abundantly clear. He's made it evident that Jesus is Lord through the many signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, think about the number of miracles that you read about in the Gospels. Consider the fact that John, the Apostle John said, look, if we were to write down everything that Jesus ever said and everything that Jesus ever did, we wouldn't have enough books to contain all of it. Think of the wonders in the heavens that God provided from his birth to his ascension. Think of all of the signs of the earth below, right? At at Jesus' death, the very earth quaked and people rose from the grave. Consider the claim of the miracle of the resurrection. Consider the claim of the miracle of Jesus' ascension and exaltation. Think of all of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and promise. In a a thousand different ways, God has made it abundantly clear through everything that has happened that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He has given an abundance of heavenly proof. And of that... According to verse 32, we all are witnesses. And guys, that includes you and me. Here, the experiential proof that Jesus is Lord, as we look at this crowd, at least 3,000 strong, we're able to see and hear and remember all that Jesus had said and all that Jesus had done. They were able to witness the firsthand accounts of Christ's followers as they told them from their own perspective, as they had walked with Jesus for three years, seeing all that he had said, all that he had done, being there to, to speak to his resurrection and his ascension that happened before their very eyes. But even more than that, Peter said in verse 33, that after Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, he did what he promised that he would do throughout his earthly ministry. He poured out the Holy Spirit, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so this crowd could see right in front of them. They had experiential proof that Jesus is Lord. Now, we may never have heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind or the appearance of divided tongues as a fire coming down to rest upon all of Christ's true followers. We may never have heard them speaking to us in our own native languages of declaring the mighty works of God. But, consider this. Are you not persuaded by the testimony of Scripture? I mean, can you not see how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many promises and prophecy? If so, that's scriptural proof. Is it not evident to you what Jesus' followers witnessed with their own eyes? How they could go to the tomb of David, but they could not see Jesus in his because it was empty. Does it not lead you at least to to nod your head, close your eyes, maybe cause your heart to race or your palms to sweat, or maybe even for you to lean in on the edge of your seat as you hear these things being told? That's physical proof. Are you not at all sensing a pull? Sort of a heavenly drawing. An inward affirmation that persuades you to believe that this is true. Friends, if, if you can affirm anything that you've heard, if you can affirm, give an, an affirmative answer to any of those questions, then it is heavenly and experiential proof to you that Jesus is the exalted Lord. 
that even right now, in the hearing of God's word, in your heartfelt affirmation of it, and that pull that you feel to respond to the evidence that has been presented to you is proof. Scriptural proof, physical proof, heavenly proof, experiential proof that Jesus is the exalted Lord. That God is at work even now in our midst. And it doesn't take wind, and it doesn't take appearances, and it doesn't take tongues, but only a divine certainty in our hearts and on our lips that Jesus is Lord. Friends, take great hope in that. Don't be sidetracked by the fanciful and ignore the work of the Spirit that is happening right now. Now, it's one thing for us to confess with our lips, but it is another to believe in our hearts. And so that leads us to the challenge. That leads us to the question, to the second part of this passage. But is He your Lord? Now, verse 36 is the climax, the main point, not just of Peter's sermon, but of the entirety of chapter 2, of the whole Pentecost account. This is what it's all building and leading up to. This is the climax. This is the thing that you have to get. If you miss anything else that has happened, here is where you need to land. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Everything that has happened, the wind, the tongues, the sermon, was all about this. Do you get this? Now friends, we, we often wrongly assume that it would have been much easier in that day to believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. I mean, after all, you... These people were, were superstitious. They, they were uneducated people. There were people in that time that believed that there were many gods that walked around on earth and had sex with stuff, and it produced things like minotaurs and unicorns. Right? We, we, don't, we don't believe that stuff. We're not, we're not that stupid. We only believe in science. Well, friends, just to make sure that, that we're not too elitist here, If you've ever cried at one of your favorite movies or TV shows, now I'm not talking about those that are based upon real stories, but right, but fictitious ones, right? Like 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 you you teared up in Toy Story 3, you know, when they were all holding their hands because they thought that they were about to be incinerated. Or, or when Andy gave his dearly loved toys to the little girl and said goodbye. They're not real. They're not even real toys. Right? They're animated. Right? I can't even say, you are just a toy. Right? Because you're not just a toy. They're animated toys. So, anyway, I'm playing off of the movie. Right? <laughs> or, or here, you get all geeked out and you're about to pay 100 bucks to dress up like some Jedi to take in a, ma- a late night, midnight showing of the latest Star Wars movie with a bunch of other weirdos who are going to get out their lightsabers and they're going to run around... <laughs> You know, and you, you about peed your pants when Harrison Ford showed up in the preview? Yes, we are clearly advanced as a society. <laughs> we're much more intelligent than we were back then. <laughs> I mean, friends, do you, do you not really, do you really not think that, that they didn't struggle with doubts? Or that they too didn't find this whole thing hard to believe? Do you think that the experience they had of, of hearing the wind or seeing the divided tongues as a fire resting on those believers or, or even having them, hearing them speak in their own native languages of the mighty works of God would have made that easier? Well, friends, what did it do for them? Amazed, bewildered, saying, what does this mean? Or mocking and dismissing the whole thing. Is that not the exact same way that we respond when we come to these claims? 
You see, they had all of the same obstacles to faith that you and I have. All right? The first obstacle to knowing for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ is that Jesus was not the God that they wanted. He was not the Lord. He was not the Christ that they were looking for. They wanted a Rambo Christ. Okay, they, they wanted a God who would make them into a supreme nation to, to literally make every other nation a footstool for the great nation of Israel, right? They, they were constantly confused about this and looking for Jesus to satisfy their wants. Nobody saw any of this coming. I mean, Jesus even predicted his own death and resurrection multiple times, but they still had no idea. It wasn't as if early that Easter morning, they got all dressed up in their new outfits, and they put on their brand new hats, and they grabbed their baskets with eggs with candy in them, and they went singing the hallelujah chorus to go greet Jesus at the empty tomb. No, they went there because they thought he was dead, and they were going to anoint his body. Thomas was it enough to hear the reports that Jesus was raised? It wasn't even enough for Jesus to appear before his very eyes. He had to put his finger in the hole in Jesus' hand before he could even fathom that Jesus was Lord. And how did he respond? My Lord and my God. Even at Jesus' ascension, they were there. And they're asking, when's the time going to come when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel in the way that we want you to restore it? And just like them, nobody today wants a Galilean carpenter who died a traitor's death in his early 30s to be our God, to be our Lord, to be our Christ either. He is not the Lord that we are looking for. And so what do we do? We try to reinvent him. Right? We're interested in Jesus. We're fascinated with Jesus. We like the idea of Jesus. But there's some things about Jesus that we don't quite square with. Right? We, we, we want him to condone our lifestyle, our, our wants, our needs, our personal preferences. We don't like those exclusive claims that he makes. We don't like that Jesus taught about hell. We don't like that Jesus upheld a standard for our sexuality and for marriage. And so we try to invent him, to, to, to follow a version of God, of Lord, of Christ that is not him. Friends, no one, no one naturally comes to Jesus and says, yep, that is exactly the God. That is exactly the Lord. That is exactly the Christ that I'm looking for. Right there. That's him. I, I know nobody Galilean carpenter going to die on a cross for my sin and he's going to be Lord of my life. Yes, sign me up. Who's in? Come on. Nobody does that. Nobody. Not anybody in this room. Not anybody on the planet. But not only do we share that obstacle that Jesus is not the Lord that we are looking for. A second obstacle to knowing this for certain is that confessing Christ requires that we expose our guilt. Two times, in, in verse 23 and in verse 36, Peter says, you killed and crucified him by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus is both Lord and Christ whom you crucified. Now that idea in that time period of the Christ being crucified was absolutely scandalous, right? They, they couldn't fathom the idea. And then you're going to go ahead and you're going to tell me that I'm to blame? I wasn't even there. How could you blame me? I wasn't there. To confess Jesus as Lord is to admit that we were wrong. To ignore him, to mock him, to admit that we had no desire for him, that we have spurned his ways, that we have disobeyed his law, and it is to wholeheartedly affirm that our sin deserves the eternal judgment of God. I deserve that. 
And Peter is saying this to religious people, to devout people, to people who are basically going to church, people like you and me, people who in the eyes of others are basically good. They're not sinners. And so how could he say that? Well, friends, hear these words from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Jesus died on a cross for sin, God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The guilt, the responsibility of Jesus' death belongs to all who have sinned. And this goes beyond lawless Romans. It goes beyond Jews that hated Jesus and handed him over. It goes beyond the nation of Israel and those who heard Peter's message. It includes you and me. Jesus died to pay the ransom for sin, and that is your sin. And so what that means is you killed Jesus. We have all crucified Christ because we are all sinners. We have crucified our Lord. We have rebelled against God in thought and word and deed. We have tried to live our lives without him. We have tried to live as if this is my world. I am God. I am capable of being Lord of my life. I do not need you. I do not want you. I want to ignore you. I want to put you in a closet. I want to bifurcate one part of my life, and you can have that, but all the rest of this is mine. We have acted treacherously against him as his enemy, mocking him, hating him. And in doing that, each one of us has nailed him to the cross. No one is exempt. No one is blameless. We have all crucified Jesus Christ the Lord. Now I wonder what you are thinking or feeling when you hear that. Does that cut you to the heart? Are you gripped by it? Does it frighten you? Does it make you angry? Or could you quite honestly not care less? The third obstacle, both for them and for us, to knowing for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ is that it requires us to accept this truth on the basis of eyewitness accounts. Now, these people were there. They really saw it. This was an historical event, but we were not there. And neither was the crowd. They didn't see the resurrected Jesus. They weren't there at his ascension into heaven. I'm just curious. Right? How, many, how many resurrections... How many ascensions have you seen? I'm guessing zero. How many have they seen? Zero. This was not a common occurrence. And yet, we're called to believe. And so they, just like us, had to take the word of these eyewitness accounts so much so that they were willing to lay down their lives for it. Would they lay down their lives for a lie? Would you? Friends, this was a real deal, okay? Because in the first few centuries of Christianity, the whole Mediterranean was part of the Roman Empire. 
And the Romans began a form of emperor worship, a cult practice. There was, as an oath of loyalty, every citizen in the Roman Empire had to recite the formula, Caesar is Lord. Now the Christian response was, we will honor the civil magistrates. We will pay our tithes and our tributes to Caesar. We will do all that we can do to be model citizens. But the one thing that we cannot say privately or publicly are those words, Caesar is Lord. Because to do so would be to commit cosmic treason because our Lord is Christ. Perhaps you've heard of the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. At the age of 86, he was charged with treason because he refused to recite that oath to Caesar. Now, the prosecutors of the Roman state, they didn't want to harm him. He was respected. They got along well with authorities. But nevertheless, because he refused to say, Caesar is Lord, he was brought into the arena before thousands of spectators. But even up to the last moments, the state officials wanted to spare him from from execution, right? So even those who were demanding that he say that, they really didn't want this to go through. And so they gave him one last opportunity. All Polycarp had to say was, Caesar is Lord and away with the atheists which ironically, Christians were considered atheists in that time because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord and they didn't hold to the Roman cult of gods and goddesses. So they were called atheists. Polycarp, in a, in a very benign way, said, smiled and said, you know, if that's all you want me to say, I can say that. So he took the stands. He looked out upon the crowd. He focused on those those religious and political leaders, these representatives of the Roman state, where they were seated, and he said, away with the atheists! (laughs) That was not what they were looking for. And then Polycarp said, 86 years, I've been faithful to my Lord. And for 86 years, he has been merciful and gracious to me. How can I now deny him? Jesus is Lord. And he was summarily executed. But it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. You know, Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And that is a miracle when anyone does that. But to, but to confess does not mean simply to recite a few words. Jesus is Lord. Now let me get back to my dinner. This is not a mantra. It's not an incantation. Not a magic formula. Abracadabra. To say Jesus is Lord means that you believe it with conviction. Unfortunately, many people today who call themselves Christians don't. Conviction that you're willing to give your life for. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that I am not. That he has all authority in heaven and on earth, not me. And not only that, to acknowledge that is true of him, but it is to say that he is my Lord. That he is Lord of my life. That the life that I now live, I live for His glory, not my own. He calls the shots for my life. From the way that I I view the world, to the way I think about marriage, to the way I spend my day, the way I relate to other people, the life that I now live, I live for Him. To confess that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead is to believe it with boldness. That because he lives and will never die again, I live. And even if I die, I will rise. And because that is the case, 
I can now give my whole life to him. I can now trust him with everything because there is nothing else on this planet. Not money, not medicine, not erotic love, not the immortality of fame or success that can do for me what he can do for me. And so I am going to worship him with my whole life. I want to follow him more than anything else. He is my king and my allegiance is to him. Not in word, but with my life. But I want you to be absolutely clear. Jesus is Lord, whether anyone ever confesses that statement or not. He is not asking for your vote. He's not sitting up there at the right hand of God, wringing his hand, just like, oh man, I'm so lonely. Would you just please sing a song about me? He is both now and forever Lord and Christ over all. And your affirmation is not going to change that. So why then does it matter whether I call him Lord or not? Well, here's something to keep in mind. We all have Lord's. We all have people, things, desires, wants, longings that tell us that this is who you got to be and this is what you got to do. And we submit to those lords. Right? It, it could be parental approval. It could be your employer who's checking in on your job performance. It could be your faculty advisor who's saying, hey, where's that dissertation? How's that coming? Oh, you got it all wrong. Any number of ways, a culture telling us that this is what it means to love, this is how we should understand sex, this is what happiness looks like, and we submit to them. Anything in your life that tells you this is how you're supposed to be, or who you're supposed to be, and what you're supposed to do are functional lords in your life. And still there are little seed Christs, people or things that we look to for salvation. You know, if I could just get away, if I could just not have to deal with this situation, if I just didn't have all of these demands placed upon me, if only I had that job, if only I had that spouse, if only I had that home, if only I had that kind of time, if only I could lose weight, if, I, if only I could enjoy all of these pleasures that are out there before me, then I would be okay. Those are all promises of salvation. But they cannot satisfy Those are lords, those Christ, those little sea saviors will not bring eternal delight to your soul. Instead, they enslave and they condemn. Jesus is the only Lord in Christ that gives life, that gives true freedom, gives forgiveness, gives the hope of eternal life and glory. Friends, we all have lords. We all have something that we serve. The question is, who do you serve? What do you serve? How good are they? Friends, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And you can know him for certain. He is the exalted Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would honestly assess our own hearts. God, impress upon us who Jesus is. Impress upon us the greatness of this term, that Jesus is Lord over all. God, help us to see to believe in the glory of his exaltation and ascension. 
Help us to trust in his goodness and his wisdom and his power as it's displayed in life over death. God, open our, our hearts to see those competing idols, those lords, those, those little sea Christs that we so often cling to hoping that they will give us life. And God, I pray that, that we would see obedience in a new light. This is not mandatory or dutiful, but it flows out of worship that belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who created all things, who redeems all things, who restores all things, who has given us everything in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.